Welcome to uh, Crosspoint. I'm Pastor Joshua. If you're family in town visiting or uh, whatnot, so it's great to see you. Merry Christmas. And we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're continuing our series, Experiencing God. And uh, we looked at some of the prophecies of Isaiah, and now we're into the Christmas story. And uh, we're looking at the story of the wise men today. All right, that's what we're going to focus on is the wise men in uh, Matthew chapter 2. And what I'd like to do is just read the whole story here, and then with you paying intense attention to uh, the passage, and then as I, as I preach and, and speak eloquently, uh, then I'll be referring to this, to this passage, all right? So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of, of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, quote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, uh, as we think about this passage, what sticks out to me is these wise men, these magi. Now, these are, these are pagans. These are Gentiles. They're not Jewish people. They're not from Jerusalem. They are not a part of this uh, religious atmosphere of the Jews and their scriptures. They're from the east, and they make this great journey uh, because of this star to worship Jesus Christ. And one of the things that just really stands out to me in their story is that anyone can experience God in Jesus Christ. Amen? Everybody say anyone. It is possible for people, no matter where they come from or who they are, what their background is or what their ethnic group is or, or whatever, it is possible for anyone to seek and to find God. And uniquely uh, uh, wonderful about the Christmas story, or maybe I should just say provocative, is, is that it always seems to be the outsiders who end up worshiping Jesus, whereas the insiders totally miss it. In fact, those who are closest to the realities of the prophecies and to uh, the realities of this geography, uh, to the realities of this coming king, they miss it. 
We see it here in Matthew chapter 2. The scribes and the, and the Pharisees who open up the passage, they know chapter and verse where the Savior is and the fulfillment of it. But they are the ones who miss Jesus, whereas those who are the farthest away are the ones who find Jesus. <laughs> For anybody here today, whether you're a Christian or, or not a Christian, whether you're investigating, whether you're exploring, whether you're doubting, whether you've been in church your whole life, the message is certain. If you're investigating, you can find God. You can find God as soon as today. You could meet God in Jesus today. But there's a warning for those of you who have been inside the church your whole life. You know these stories inside and out. You can be so close to him that you totally miss him. You can be be so close to God and so close to Jesus that you miss out on experiencing what he has for your life. But either way, no matter who you are, believer or unbeliever, it doesn't matter. The offer is the same and the promise is the same. In fact, to quote Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13, this is a promise. Chapter 29 verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Are you a seeker of God today? Are you on a journey to experience God today? And the question that the Magi answer for us is, how can we search and seek after God in a way that's going to lead us to Jesus? How can we search and seek after God so that we can experience who He really is? The reason why the Magi and not the religious people experience Jesus is because of a few things. Number one, the stars. You say, I want to experience God. I want to find Christ. I I need God right now. How can I experience Him? Look to the stars. It's the star uh, uh, of the east that leads the, the magi, the wise men, to Jerusalem. It's the star in the sky that gets them going on the journey. It's the star that leads them into the Holy Land. Now, the big question is, what is the star? That's the big question. What's the star? Some say that the star is is Jupiter, that they saw Jupiter. At this time of year, Jupiter would have been uniquely bright, and Jupiter was the planet that stood for kings. And so they saw Jupiter, and they were like, that's the, it's shining uniquely bright, and so that's the planet of the king, and so we should go search for the king. Others say it's a combination of Jupiter and Saturn, that uh, at this time of year and at this time of history, there was a time surrounding close to this period of time when Saturn and Jupiter got really close to each other, and it is a scientific fact that they threw off a more than usual light or illumination and became brighter than usual. Saturn is the planet of the Jews. It always was symbolic of the Jews. Jupiter is the planet for the king. And so they looked up, they saw Jupiter and Saturn together, and they said, hey, king of the Jews, he's been born, let's go find him. Others say it was just some random, like, you know, rogue comet that just randomly kind of flew across the sky, and God in his providential uh, care allowed that to happen so that they would seek after Jesus. Others say it was a supernova. John MacArthur, in his commentary, makes a pretty good case that maybe it's just the Shekinah glory of God. 
that what happened to the wise man is the same thing that happened to Moses with the burning bush or the same thing that happened in all kinds of theophanies in the Old Testament when God revealed his glory, whether in the temple or in the pillar of fire or so forth, and that something similar to the Magi happened. And so you say to me, what is the star? Pastor Josh, in all of your great wisdom, what is the star? And my answer to you is a confident, I have no idea. I don't have a clue. But I do know this, is that we might be able to, just for a moment, even parenthetically, don't write this down as gospel, but we might be able to say that it was a natural phenomenon. It would make sense with biblical theology that it was. Because you see, God can use nature... God can use natural phenomenon. God can use the earth and and the planet and things that matter to us in our natural world to get us started on seeking after him and finding him. (laughs) One writer says that God can adapt his revelation to nature and to earth according to the person he's trying to reach. The Magi, they look at the stars all the time. They were scientists, astronomers, in some cases astrologers, which is not a good thing, but they're always looking at the stars. And so, of course, if God wants to get them on a journey to find him, he's going to use something that's very natural to them, something that's a part of their natural world. Later on in the gospel, when God wants the fishermen to look at Jesus and to begin to investigate Jesus... God uses fish to begin them on their journey to become a disciple. The Bible in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says that all of creation, all of the natural world is communicating the invisible divine attributes of God every day. Day by day pours forth speech that there is a God. All kinds of natural things happening to us in our daily life, in the marketplace, everywhere we go. There's little signs that are leading us to consider where is God? Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. We could assume, maybe it was a combination of planets, maybe it was an unusual phenomenon, but a natural phenomenon nonetheless, and it got the Magi searching. But we can certainly say theologically and be dead right, gospel truth is this, that if you're searching for God, the place to begin is not looking for supernatural signs and wonders, but looking in your natural world and life to begin your search and your journey for God. Look up. Look around. <laughs> look, number one, at earth. Look at the choreography that staggers the mind. Look, at, look all around at the sunsets, the sunrises, the stars. Look at, look at the ocean. Look at creation and tell yourself, did this come by accident? Is this some kind of random accident? We know. in the beauty of a waterfall, or I remember we used to, when I was growing up... And, 
And I had a little money in my life. We used to go skiing up in the Rockies, right? And we'd go to Breckenridge or somewhere like that, and we'd ski. Almost every winter we'd go. And, and, and I remember skiing. I put on those skis and going down that mountain and looking around, and it was such a natural high. I didn't need drugs as a kid. All I needed was the mountains, and I was high on I don't know what it was, but now looking back, something was calling my heart out and saying, this means something. Natural revelation, general revelation can get us started. Look at the earth or look at culture. What is culture? Culture is what man makes. And man was made in the image of God. And when you look at culture and you look at all the things that human beings have made, all the progress that human beings have brought about, think about modern medicine. Guys, if you've had a wife who's had a baby and she got the shot in the middle of delivering the baby, you should be thankful for culture. Amen? I remember on one child, it was either the second or the third one, I remember Sherry was starting to go into labor, and I started to touch her. She said, don't you touch me. And I said, doctor, where's the shot? That dude brought in this shotgun shot, and he was like, I was like, shoot it in her back and give me some of two. You know what I mean? That's culture, man. That's wonderful. Man made that stuff. That's fantastic. And when you look at the wonder of the modern world. When you look at culture, you see what I call the glorious ruins. Glorious because there's all this great stuff that we do. I read a book about the making of the Brooklyn Bridge by David McCullough. The Brooklyn Bridge was this engineering feat that had never been done before. And all of, these, all of this stuff came up against the engineers. And it was during the Great Depression. And they still finished off the bridge. And when you finish this 850-page book, you go, oh my gosh, mankind is amazing. We're not accidents. We're made in the image of God. It all points back to, to some maker, some creator. It's a star. They're stars. We call people superstars. I watched the Bo Jackson documentary. How many guys saw that on the ESPN 3030? Oh, dudes, you all got to watch that sometime. Bo Jackson, probably one of the greatest athletes of my time. And, 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 and all of his teammates kept coming back to, like, theology. They said, this guy had God-given talent. There was something in the star that was Bo Jackson that pointed to a creator and said, we can't attribute it to him. It was God that gave him that talent. Nothing miraculous. Just natural. Earth. Culture. You say, ah, oh, yeah, but you see... What I see in the world is not the Brooklyn Bridge and Bo Jackson. I see death and I see war and I see, I see tragedy and I see suffering and I see evil and I see lost children and I see unborn children being murdered by the thousands and I, I see in culture something that's not glorious but ruinous and evil and I suffer with the thought of loss, of death, Allow this to happen. But you see, as soon as we ask that question, which is a legitimate question, by the way, nothing illegitimate about that question. 
But as soon as we ask that question, immediately we are proving the existence of God. Immediately, not only are we proving the existence of God, but we're proving that God is good and just. And He made us to crave what is right, not what is wrong. He made us to crave what is righteous, not what is evil. He made us to love truth and to hate what is wrong. You see... The stars, the natural world, the cultural world, the glorious ruins that is our world. It all is pointing like a light saying, there is a God. Keep on your journey. Keep seeking after him. Go and find him. The question is, what's your star? What's going on in your life that's pointing you to need God? What's pointing you? What suffering are you going through that is causing you to go before God in pain? What goodness is happening to you naturally that God is speaking to you and saying, you need me? That's the stars. Use that to seek after him. Don't use it to run from him. Use it to go to him. But you see... The problem is is that the star can only get the wise men so far. In the chapter, we see that the star gets the wise men to Jerusalem, but not to Bethlehem. The star, the natural revelation of our world, can only keep us going so far. We need something more. We need something more direct. And so you have to add to the stars of your life scriptures from God. And what happens is, is that these wise men come into Jerusalem. Now, it's very important. I did some great research because I'm working for you, baby. Amen? This is what I do. All right? I did some background check on the wise men. And the wise men are centuries-old group of people from the east, okay? And they really got really powerful in Babylon. And you can read about them in the Old Testament book of Daniel. In fact, it's likely that because Daniel saved their life in Daniel chapter 2, that the wise men had a favorable view of the prophet Daniel. And Daniel in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel did prophesy of the coming of the Son of Man. But alas, I have no time to go into detail on that. However, the wise men grew so powerful, they, they were the most powerful group in Babylon. In fact, you could not become a king unless the wise men approved you. The wise men were a massive group of people. They were religious, scientific. They were the most educated. They were advanced in mathematics. And get this, they carried weapons everywhere they went. They were like the Navy SEALs, all right? And everywhere they went, they carried guns, shotguns, and, and, well, you know what I'm saying, maybe more like machetes and axes, you know what I'm saying? But whenever they came into town, now this is important, they didn't come in groups of three. They came more like at least in hundreds, maybe even thousands whenever they traveled long distances. That way, whenever they came into a city, ain't nobody going to mess with the Magi. You mess with the Magi, they will take you out. Now, this is proven in secular uh, history in the ancient Near Eastern text. So when they come into Jerusalem, Herod sees them. And Herod, who's old and insecure and he's all jacked up. Anyways, Herod sees them, and he gets troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Not only because of their question, which was a part of his trouble, but because of who they were. These are powerful people. But they only have a simple question. We are seeking the king that's been born. We've seen his star. 
So Herod calls the scribes, the religious people, the, the Bible people, the seminary graduates, the PhDs in biblical theology, and he calls them all in, and, and here they come, you know, all the religious people with their Bibles. And they're all dressed up. They look good. They're sharp. And they open up chapter and verse, chapter, uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, tells the Magi and Herod and everybody else, the king will be born in Bethlehem. They would know, almost like the back of their hand, that in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam had an oracle that the king would come, and so would his star. So they knew the star and the Jesus and him being king of the Jews. This was all a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, here's the point. The point is, is that without the prophecies and without Scripture, the Magi never find Bethlehem and they never find Jesus. The star goes away, they get Scripture, the Scripture takes them to Bethlehem, and then when they get to Bethlehem, the star shines down on where Jesus is at. Therefore, nature and uh, uh, particular revelation come together to point to Jesus as the Son of God. And if you and I want to experience God, if we want to find God in our journey, if we want to seek God rightly, we must have the direct revelation of the Scriptures. You have to have the Bible. Nature alone can't get you there. Nature can only get you to Jerusalem, but Scripture can get you to Bethlehem. But here was my problem when I was writing the sermon. You have to have the right attitude towards Scripture in order for it to lead you to Jesus. You can't just intellectually know the facts of Scripture and voila, you're going to find God. You have to have a heart that is open to Christ in your life. This is very important. Because everybody in the room knows the Bible at this point, right? Everybody in our story. King Herod knows the Bible. He knows about the prophecy. He knows where Jesus is at. He knows the Bible, and it does not lead him to worship Jesus. Of course, the religious people, they know the Bible. My gosh, they're proud about it. They know the verses. They know the verses better than anybody in the room. And yet they don't go to worship Jesus, even though Bethlehem is just a little small distance from Jerusalem, only a few miles, in fact. The only ones who use scripture and it, and it changes them so that they go to worship is the wise men. And so there's a few things you need to know. If you're searching for God, if you're seeking God to experience him and you come to scripture, you've got to come to scripture with the right attitude. There's two wrong attitudes and there's one right. Now let me tell you about the two wrong. First of all, you cannot come to church or to scripture with a hostile heart. If you have a hostile heart, heart. Scriptures won't lead you to Jesus. Scriptures will be used by you to hate other people. It's very important. <laughs> if I've seen this once, I've seen it a million times in the church as a pastor. People who know the Bible as well as the pastor, yet they, they're so hostile. They're so insecure in their own religiosity that their knowledge of the Bible doesn't help them or the world or the church. It hurts because they end up using it to hate other people. Herod is hostile. He's an old man by this time. He's radically insecure. Now, when, when King Herod was young and he first was a puppet of Rome, he was a pretty good leader. He lowered taxes. Can I get an amen? Amen. Oh, yes. I'm speaking your language today. All the days, yeah. 
He even fed the poor for a long time. He would, at Thanksgiving time, he'd bring out the turkeys and give the poor turkeys. I don't know. He gave them food. You know what I mean. He rebuilt all these buildings, made things really beautiful, rebuilt the Jewish temple, which caused the Jews to really find him favorable for a period of time. Um, He was a a benevolent leader. He did all kinds of great stuff. But as he reigned longer and longer and grew older and older, he grew more and more insecure and paranoid. He was freaked out that somebody was going to take his place. And so he grew hostile. The tangled web he had weaved his whole political career began to choke him and to take him. And and so he ended up killing his mother-in-law and his favorite wife and two sons and one son-in-law. And he ended up being like this godfather figure where if he was walking in a room, everybody was terrified of him. And so by the time this is happening, he's so hostile. He's just, oh, Herod, just hostile. And he wants to use scripture to try to find Jesus, not to worship him, but to kill him, to eradicate him because he's so brutally hostile. Man, if you've got a hostile heart, soften it. If you've got a hard heart towards God, soften it. Let God break your heart so that you're softened towards him and towards people. Stop being so hostile all the time. Stop being so suspicious all the time. It clouds your whole judgment. It clouds your ability to hear from God and to enjoy Scripture and to let it do what it should do, which is lead you to nothing more, nothing less than the worship of Jesus Christ our Savior. But for Scripture to really lead you so that you find God, you can't just have a hostile heart, but you also cannot have an indifferent heart. And I find that one of the most amazing truths of the Christmas story is that the people who had the prophecies in their hand, who had waited hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years for the fulfillment of the prophecy of a Savior, there he is only a few miles away, finally fulfilling what they had studied in their Bible their whole life since they were wee little children. And they come into Herod and they said, yep. If the king has been born, he's in Bethlehem. Are you good? Because we're, we're hungry. We're going to go to lunch. Are you good? Are you good? Because i, I got to go. Herod, stop talking so long. I've got to go. I'm hungry. Close their Bibles, turn around, and go back to their life as usual without even investigating whether this could be true. They don't go to Bethlehem. Why? Because even though they had all the intellectual facts of the Bible, their heart was indifferent to God. They were lukewarm. They were cold. And so, of course, the Bible wouldn't lead them to Jesus. It had become this cold mechanical thing that we just kind of use so that we can keep our traditions in line and our rituals in line. And we can do our, ch- our church every week. And we just can kind of keep doing our rules and keeping our list of do's and don'ts perfectly ordered. And then we can be all be safe and our children can be safe. Indifference. Don't be indifferent. Let the scriptures break open the passion for God that you were made for. Let the scriptures open up your voices and your lungs to worship and praise Him. Let the scriptures kneel you down in real sincere fear fear and faith. Let, Let the scriptures lead you to what it's supposed to, which is warm fellowship and love and relationship with the God who loved you and gave His Son for you. 
That's what the scripture is for. You see, the key is the heart of the wise men. And they might not have had the ethnic pedigree to worship Jesus, the geographic pedigree, the, the, even the religious background pedigree, but what they did have was an open heart. And they said, we have come here to worship the king. And we only want to know scripture for one reason, to worship We only want to hear your sermon, preacher, for only one reason. And that is to worship Jesus because it's all about Jesus. It is Jesus plus nothing. And you open up that scripture and you tell me where he's at because that's where we're going. And if that's your attitude with scripture, let me tell you something. Your life will be changed. It will be changed. And it won't be changed because of rules. And it won't be changed because it gives you power or formulas to reform your life. It will change you because it will lead you to the one who will take over your heart. Who will absolutely exchange his righteousness for your unrighteousness. Who will exchange your spirit with his spirit. He will change your life. So what you need to seek after God is the stars and the scriptures. But finally, you've got to worship the Savior. After they find out where Christ is at, they go. And it's interesting. It says here, look with me in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 9. Herod, ironically, I mean, it's one of the great ironies, but it's because King Herod tells them the verse and tells them it's in in Bethlehem after listening to the king. They went on their way, and behold, and the star comes back out. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And this is, this is what happens when the natural world starts pointing to God, and then you go to Scripture, and Scripture confirms what you're experiencing in the natural world. Both things become more exciting. Creation becomes more exciting. Uh, scripture becomes more exciting because you begin to see God everywhere, His fingerprints and everything. And so they rejoice in verse 10 over the star more now than they had rejoiced over it before. It says, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now there's church. There it is. Rejoice exceedingly with great joy. That is emphatic, isn't it? And verse 11, and going into the house, now here it is, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, because it says into the house, that's, no, that's not the manger. It, Jesus could be as old as two years old at this point in time. Do you know that? By this time, they're still in Bethlehem, but they're not in a manger or there's nothing going on there. Now, the innkeeper finally has made enough room for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, however old he is, to be in a house. And so they go into this house, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now you know nature and the stars and then the scriptures is leading you to the right Jesus, and you are worshipping him correctly if you are worshipping him with the attitude by which these Gifts represent. You know you're worshiping Jesus and experiencing God correctly when, number one, you offer him with your heart gold or what it represents that he is the king. 
when those magi, when they laid down that gold, what they were saying to that child was, you are the king of kings. We looked at that with Isaiah. Who's the real king, we asked in the book of Emmanuel. Who is the real king? Ahaz, Uzziah, Jotham, the king of Babylon? No, the real king is Jesus. He is the ruler over the world. And he came to rule. And he came to bring a new heavens and a new earth. He came to restore and to change everything because he's the king. And that's the question. Is Jesus your king? And then the second gift they offer him is frankincense. And frankincense is the language and the, and the gift to priest. It's kind of a word on incense, which is something priests use. And a priest in the Bible is a mediator between God and man. There was priests all over in the Old Testament. They would use various uh, incense to create aromas and stuff like that. And so, and so frankincense is a... Is a, is a priestly gift. And what they're saying to Jesus is, you are not only a priest, you are the priest. You are the mediator between God and human beings. And you know you're worshiping Jesus rightly when you say, you are the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by you, Jesus. You are the priest. And if you have a confession to give, if you have sin to lay at a priest's feet, you don't have to come to me. Can I get an Amen. Don't be bringing me your confessions. You've got a high priest who's fully able to hear your confession, forgive you of all your sin, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because he is the mediator between us and God. He is our priest, and we can go to him anywhere, at any time. We can go to the throne of grace in our weakness because Jesus is the priest. He is the king, he is the priest. But then they offer him myrrh. Now, this is an interesting one. Myrrh is something that you put on a dead person. <laughs> it would be kind of like in our modern day uh, times if we brought an empty casket and said to baby Jesus, Here you go, Jesus. Here's an empty casket. What kind of Christmas gift is that? Y'all remember the Charlie Brown Christmas story when everybody gets candy, but Charlie Brown gets rocks, right? It's like candy, 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 rock, you know? Giving somebody myrrh is kind of like giving rocks. It refers to death. But you see, they're acknowledging that the reason why Jesus came into the world was to die on a cross. The reason why Jesus was born was to die for sinners, to be the Savior. And what the Magi and the wise men are acknowledging in the coming of Jesus is, we thank you, Jesus, that you are going to the cross for my sins. We thank you that the reason why you were born in a manger is to go to Calvary. We thank you and we worship you for taking our place. For absorbing our iniquities, for taking away our transgressions by your stripes, Jesus. We are healed. You know you're worshiping Jesus when he takes all your sorrow and all your pain and all your death and all your sin and reverses it in the resurrection, reverses it and makes it all untrue with the world he's going to bring. He is the Savior. 
That's what Scripture is telling us. He is the Savior. That's what nature is telling us. He is the Savior. That's what our life is telling us. Jesus is the gift. Do you worship him even today? Do you say you are the king? You are the priest. You are the one who takes my death. Right now, we're going we're gonna to do that very thing. I'm going to give you and myself an opportunity to come to communion and just say, thank you for the reason why you came into this world. To remember the most important part of Jesus' life wasn't his birth, but the most important part was his death and resurrection. This is our symbol of saying, you are the king, you are the priest, you are the one who dies for my sins. And you know, I just want to, if you're not a believer today, here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to come and become a Christian. I want you to believe in Jesus. I want you to say, listen, I'm not going to be like the religious and be indifferent. And I'm not going to be like secular people and hostile I'm going to be like the wise men, and I'm going to open up my hearts to worship. Come to Jesus. He says, everyone who calls on my name, I will be saved. saved." And so if you can say to Jesus, you are the king, you are my priest, you are my savior who died for me, then I want to invite you today to this table for your first communion as a believer. But if you can't make that decision, you're like, I'm not going to be a Christian. I'm not. I'm not going to say that Jesus is the way to God. That's not what Christmas means to me. Then I just ask you to stay seated when we grab, grab our elements and to consider in your heart whether you might change your mind. For us believers, let's just worship and consider our hearts and let me pray for us. God, I thank you for these simple elements that symbolize a powerful reality. That you, Jesus, came in the flesh to absorb sin and death, to take on the tragedy and the sorrow of this world, and to ultimately reverse it in your resurrection. God, for those who don't know you, give them the grace to know you. Give them the grace to seek. May they seek and find you. May May they turn around and see you. And God, we thank you for these elements in this time together as a church family to worship you by remembering you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.